0: Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle podcast with giveaways to send out like mine, or a full blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer, no special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option save time and money with stamps.com there's no risk and with my promo code pod that's p-o-d you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts just go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in pod that's stamps.com promo code pod never go to the post office again Welcome. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, host of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. People who experience trauma live an existence that is lived through a different lens than others. Trauma sends us into survival mode, and you are not completely out of it until you're able to process the event. And moments that trigger these memories feel, at times, like life or death. Some people can end up living their lives in survival mode. However, it doesn't have to be that way. And for those who are able to get to the other side, that experience is something even more incredible than you could even ever imagine. That's post-traumatic growth. My guest today is Stephanie Hutchins, founder and life coach for Serotonous Life and author of Transformation After Trauma, Embracing Post-Traumatic Growth. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You know, I, I talk about post traumatic growth a lot because I honestly didn't realize that that was a thing. And I was talking to somebody about it, and I feel like we don't talk about it enough, right? We feel like we're stuck in this space, and we're just like, you know, there's there's no hope for me. I know that there have been way too many times where I'm like, there's no hope for me. I've seen, I've done this and done that, and I just didn't find what was working for me so for you i i'd love for our listeners to kind of hear your story and kind of how you got to this place
1: okay yes I'd, i'd be more than happy to share so i'll um i'll give like a my summary overview of my of my experiences Um, And so I have a long history um, of trauma. I um, was sexually violated by uh, eight men um, between the ages of nine and 19, and seven of them violated me by the age of 15. And that doesn't account the time that um, a teenage boy in my hometown when I was 16 came up behind me and put a knife to my throat um, because I was able to get away. Um, from to safety, um, and then after you know years of being told in so many ways that I was unlovable by all these men, and that I was only worth you know what my body could offer them, I finally found a man in my mid twenties who loved me in ways that I never imagined. And a week and a half before um, I closed on the house we were supposed to move, be moving into together, I found him dead at 25. And so my life just at that point, I mean, it was at that point that everything just like, like I just fell apart and I reached such a low point in my mid twenties. Um, I was self-destructing in a variety of ways. And I reached that point where I was just like, how can anything ever get better like how can life ever go on and ever have any kind of meaning or value after this and that's why i contemplated suicide on almost a daily basis for years because i just didn't feel that life could ever get better and and that's why I'm now at a point in my life, you know, it's it's almost 15 years later after I found my significant other dead and and my life is barely recognizable today. You know, I've gone on to complete my PhD, I have a beautiful home and in many ways a beautiful life. I've traveled around the world, I have deeply meaningful and loving relationships and And now my mission is to share with others that idea that hope and healing is possible. And not only can we heal after trauma, but we can actually thrive after it. And we can actually use that immense pain that we've experienced in our life to actually catapult us forward into a beautiful life and that's really what my book and my business are all about is is using our immense pain to experience immense beauty
0: moving forward because it's fully possible (laughs) absolutely you know i didn't know that was possible like i was saying earlier um So as a child, you've experienced significant trauma. Did you have adults in your life who, who were there for you, who you can tell this to, or was this a secret that you kept for a long time? Oh, it was a deep
1: secrets that I kept, you know, I, um, I grew up in a very small um, rural town and we didn't, Talk about these things. You know, Mm -hmm. I finally told um, about when I was 12 about one of my uh, victimizers, but it was a family member. And um, the decision was made that um, we wouldn't press charges and we wouldn't tell, and we wouldn't talk about it because of the stigma that would be associated with, um, with that and with being small community and everybody knowing your business. And so when, um, I then started to be victimized by other people later on it. So, so my, so the first three victimizers, um, of me were all family members and people I was supposed to trust. And so, you know, my first one at nine um, started occurring around nine or 10, you know, it was, you know, don't tell. And um, it was somebody that was very very, supposed to be very important to me. And, um, and I didn't tell. And then when I finally told about another victimizer and I was told we have to keep this secret, I just kept on carrying the secret. So when I kept on getting, but of course what ended up happening is I was, you know, falling apart and um, I was being very self-destructive. I developed an eating disorder um, at a young age and I became sexually promiscuous. And I just ended up you know, I started drinking at a young age and, um, I just ended up being put in situations that made it more likely that I would be re-victimized. And so here this message was, is this is a secret. So I just kept carrying secret after secret as they kept on, um, accumulating. And then at, at 15, um, I was actually at, a a party, a birthday party, and there were adults, and they were allowing us to drink a lot. And I actually ended up being victimized by two men that night. And one was the boyfriend of the um, friend Um, So my friend's mother's boyfriend was one of the people who violated me that night. Mm -hmm. And that morning, she looked at me with such disgust that I felt like I needed to apologize. And I said, I just part, it was like, reflex, I'm so sorry. And she looked at me and said, you knew exactly what you were doing and you got everything you asked for. And so why would I ever tell about that? So I just, I never told about those two people violating me that night because she told me it was my fault. And, you know, I got what I was asking for. And so again, when I was violated at 19, it just, you know, um, I never said. And then the person who came up behind me and attacked me at 16, he was a teenager, we're in a small town, we want to protect everyone. So like it was, you know, he went to quote unquote counseling and nothing major happened. So I've just got this message over and over that what was being done to me, that was my burden to carry. And so now what's really interesting is now I'm almost 40 years old and I've started to start I began talking openly about my traumas. And when I tell people I've been sexually violated by eight men, I've literally had people tell me, I don't believe you. Like, that's gotta be a lie. Like, and now you're just talking about it. Why did you never Mm -hmm. say anything? And they don't understand this backstory of all the ways I've been told that it was my burden to carry and, and I wasn't supposed to share. And, and so it's, it's been an, interesting journey, but now, um, I feel it's very important to be, start being vulnerable and, saying like, because for years I felt like I was alone. And now I'm realizing that almost every single woman in my life has been sexually violated. And many of them have been violated by family and they also never told. And mm-hmm. so it's, so by, me becoming vulnerable and sharing my story gives permission for others to be vulnerable and to begin sharing their story. And as I'm sure you're aware, each time we share our story becomes a little less heavy because we're sharing
0: the burden, you know, we're not carrying it by ourselves anymore. Wow. Yeah. Like you were saying, all these maladaptive coping skills that kind of lead you down this path of to be re-victimized pretty much. I I understand that. I've, I've had a similar experience. I was also um, abused by a family member. Um, it was my father, and you think that this is the person you trust. And for the longest time, I really did. And of course, you're told that you don't talk about it. So you don't, and like you're and and you know, you said it really well. You're carrying this burden alone. And the more you talk about it, it's not so heavy. So, oh, wow. And that's, and like you were saying, like living in a small town, when your world is so small, you don't really know any better, especially as a child, even as a teenager. I mean, I know there's there's this level of shame that is carried with it, and that makes it harder to talk. But like you were saying, we give other people permission to share their truth when we expose our own um and become vulnerable how did you first so you met then you you found this man at the age of 25 is and then you found and then he passed how did you find healing after that hmm.
1: so you know, something that I guess I should add about this that made, I guess, the whole law, you know, his loss even more uh, devastating for me was that um, a few months before, um, two months before he passed, I decided to start seeking help and start talking about my traumas. So at, um, you know, 2025, 20, I, I, it was the first time I started to talk about it. And, um, I so I started seeing this therapist, and I didn't tell him that I was going and starting to talk about all this trauma. He never knew about mm-hmm. all my trauma. And so I, a few days later, I was ready to start telling him what I was reliving. And literally the same day that I wanted to talk to him, he found out that his mother had terminal cancer. And so no way did I, and so he was devastated. And so no way did I feel that I could share. Mm -hmm. And so for the next two weeks, we're with her, she's on hospice and she died two weeks later with him and I by her side. And then he just fell apart. And so what was happening is I'm reliving traumas that I had buried deep for years and had nobody to share that pain with. And then my rock that I thought was going to be able to help carry this burden was falling apart, and then he died, on a very unexpectedly. And so, and then I'm living in a house now that everywhere I look, I'm just looking at all the plans we had for every single space in the room, and so everything it just was just compounding and making everything just just extra difficult, and so. I, I couldn't work. I, I I tried to work and I just couldn't. And I fell into a really deep depression. I wasn't um, bathing for days on end, brushing my hair, brushing my teeth. And when I did go out of the house, it was usually to go to a bar and, you know, find a, a strange man. And usually, um, you know, I was looking to replace what I had lost. And, um, and I, I fell, I fell really far. And my mother um, was trying to support me in any way she could during this time. And in the way that she was supporting me primarily was financially. um, And because I wasn't working. And after a period of time, she just, she saw I, I was just getting worse. I wasn't getting better. And she drew a line in the sand and said, enough is enough, Stephanie. Like I cannot continue to um, help you financially unless you get help because, oh, I guess I should have added that therapist that I started seeing right before um, his name was Stan, before he died. She ultimately told me um, that I would never be able to heal unless I accepted God into my life. Mm -hmm. And I told her from the very beginning like that was a very difficult thing for me because i felt in all of those years of my trauma that i had been abandoned by god and she put her hands up literally in a in a in a session and said well unless you're ready to accept him into your life you're never going to be able to move on and so like she re-traumatized in me in many ways. And I stopped going to her after that. Wow. So my, my mother said, you know, you have to get help. And so she came with a name and phone number in hand of a therapist that her and my, my sister had found and said, you need to get help. And, um, and for days after that, I, I was really depressed. I was really angry. And then I started to look at it differently and said, you know, she's she's throwing me on a lifeline. and here I was contemplating suicide every day. And here I, I looked and I said, I have a choice. I can either continue on this path I'm on of self-destruction and possibly ending up killing myself, or I could, you know, take advantage of the help that's being offered me. And I decided to take that help and I reached out and I, um, I made an appointment with that therapist and, um, and it began my beginning journey of moving forward. And what I started to do is I set little goals for myself. So I'm a very goal oriented person, always have been. And so, um, So for me, it was very instinctual when I began that process of moving forward, I had to say, okay, where, if I'm going to go forward, like, what are my first steps? I can't just go and start applying for jobs because, well, I can barely take care of myself. I'm not bathing. So I started with those basic self-care things. Mm -hmm. I literally would write on in my journal on a piece of paper, my goals for the day were to take a shower or to brush my teeth. Or to actually leave the house or to not sleep with another strange man you know these were some of my initial goals but something started interesting started to happen is as i started to accomplish these goals i started to bathe regularly i started to brush my teeth i started to just take care of myself and my home i started to take out the trash i started to clean my home I started to feel better and I started to gain more confidence about myself and my ability to move forward. And as I did, I was able to start putting myself out there and applying for jobs. And I started to go back to school and finish um, um, because I had started a PhD program um, that quarter, like literally he... That day that I closed on the house um, that um, that we were supposed to be moving into together, I finished my first quarter of my PhD program, and so I had like it was all sorts of things were falling apart, and so like I, I had to take a like a little hiatus from my my doctoral program, and and as I started to feel better, I was able to continue and move on with my life, and I started to teach. And, and I found out I was really good at it. And all of these things that I did started building my belief in myself and my ability to move forward. And, and it's just, it's been a beautiful journey. Of course, I've hit a lot of bumps in the road since and, and my traumas still revisit um, uh, regularly and I have to deal with them as they, they come back up. But Um, I've learned a variety of ways to, to handle um, those hard days and, and, and not have them linger for too long, you
0: know? Yeah. Um, you, You talk about your mother. This is a question I feel like I've been asked, like when you were drinking and partying and bringing these strangers home, did your mother realize that these were symptoms of the trauma that you were asked to suppress? i think i should first start out with saying that my
1: mother and i have a very special relationship today we are very close and i i try my best to not hold any you know resentments um, against her because i i truly believe that we're all doing the best we can Mm -hmm. in the moment with the knowledge and resources we have available And I look back on my, the mother I knew back when I was a teenager and her and I did not get along very well then we were constantly fighting and, and she was very unhappy. And, um, and I look back and I see that she was doing the best she could. And, um, and later on I've realized like that advice that, that, what sh- that decision she made that we weren't going to press charges and we weren't going to talk about it was actually, she had called like a local resource, um, and asked like how to handle this, knowing it was a family. And she was following advice that was given to her by an organization. Wow. So I never knew that. And so that she didn't just decide this, that she had reached out to other people and, um, had gotten advice. And this was the, the advice that she was given. And so she had tried, like when she found out that I had an eating disorder, she had brought me to a local, um, you know, like a clinic and, and had them put me on medication, but, um, but so she did things to try, but, um, so I do believe she was doing her best, but, um, but I don't, I don't know if she knew, like particularly, so I don't name some of the people yet. Um, and part of it is because I haven't told her who, Mm. and I don't know how, so even today, like, um, I'm always protecting her feelings. And so for me, even today, I don't name particularly two of the people um, because I'm afraid of how she's going to handle it when she finds out who they were. And so I'm certain that someday, at point in time, I will talk to her about it, but I still today, and some of my close friends know who these people were, but I don't share it publicly because I don't want my mom to find out that way. I need to come to her in my own time because I know the immense guilt that she's going to feel. She already feels immense guilt knowing all of the victimization that I experienced and didn't mm-hmm. feel that I could come to her. So I think when she knows who two of my earliest victimizers were, I I I don't know how she'll be able to handle that. And she ever asked you?
0: No. 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 Is it one of those things like she, mm-hmm. she kind of doesn't want to know. It's yeah. A, it's a lot.
1: Yeah. It's a lot. And I think it, it would be very challenging for her to handle knowing um, who was hurting me. And, and so, and I, you know, I've only recently started speaking to even my therapist and close friends about my earliest victimizer. I'm starting to name him. And so it's even new for me to start putting names to these people. So so it's like when I'm on these public platforms, um, I, I feel like one of these days I'm gonna get closer to speaking, you know, their names out loud. Um, but I'm I'm not there yet. And and part of it is me wanting to protect my mom and, and her feelings. And and I think that was a large part of what was happening when I was a child. My mother um, is always very overwhelmed and overworked and under a lot of stress. And I never wanted to cause her more stress. And so even as a grown woman today, I'm still looking out for protecting her. And you know, and, and that brings up some a mixture of feelings and emotions for me um, that I I sift through and try to work through. Um, but but yeah her and i i i i i'm i feel very um fortunate to have such a loving relationship i consider it to be a very special relationship and so i guess part of me doesn't want to do anything that could break it apart you know, because it is a very important relationship to me. So I'm still figuring out that balancing act of how to have this really loving relationship and work through what I need to work through. So I don't build up resentment because part of me can feel a level of resentment, but I feel like I need to work through that. So anger doesn't come out when I approach her with it. So these are things I'm even today
0: still working through myself, you know, Yeah, I, you know, I didn't have a great relationship with my mother growing up, but it got it gradually got better later in high school and after when I was in college. But when everything came out when I finally felt okay with saying talking about the abuse, I mean, it took me over 20 years. I, you know, my mom was very understanding, very supportive, like, well, she said she was going to leave my dad, but she she didn't. And I kind of knew that wasn't gonna happen, but I didn't expect her to expect things from me, like still visit the house with my children. Uh. And when one day, not too long ago, she was like, when are you going to just forget about it and move on? And I, I just, that hurt me so badly that it was debilitating. And I, I was like, okay, well then I'm, now I'm done talking to her. And, you know, she didn't reach out, which was fine. Cause I don't know what I would do if she did, but I did MDMA psychedelic therapy. And the first thing that came to me was this feeling of losing my child. And it was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to feel this what's happening. And you know, the, the person who was administering it said, well, what is happening? What is it? What are you connecting it to? And immediately I thought of my mother and I thought my mom, this is how my mom feels. She feels like she's lost me, but she can't, she can't do anything about it. Like she's kind of stuck in where she, where she is. And it's not that she doesn't love me or she doesn't believe me or she doesn't care about me. It's just, she is trying to do the best that she can in her situation. And that was just All of a sudden, all of that, that resentment and all that anger just like melted away. And so I think it's that understanding because the truth is she's probably never going to change. Right. And so that, that took a lot. And when that happened, it was like, that was just like more weight, just falling off my shoulders. So, yeah, I, I think that is, it's beautiful that you have such a great relationship with your mother now. I, I think that is, that's something that's special and that she has supported you. And you did talk about an eating disorder. When did the eating disorder start?
1: Well, so I, I had bulimia. Um, well, I guess I'll always have it. I'm con- considered to be in remission now, but um the actual purging, like binging and actual purging of vomit, I would vomit. I, I don't remember the exact age. I remember it was worse at its worst um, between the, the ages of 16 and 18. I was purging, binging and purging eight to 12 times a day during that time frame. But pre the pre vomiting phase, I would exercise vigorously. So I would consider that like I had started those kinds of habits around the age of 12. Um, Mm. and, and by that time I had been victimized by three men, all family members. And I had started to walk, like walk, like eight to 10 miles a day or ride my bike like 12 to 14 miles yeah. every day. But I usually walk and I just walked and I walked and I walked. And um, and then um, it became like um, me doing, I would stay up until like three o'clock in the morning doing exercise videos, trying to burn off all of the calories that I ate during the day. And I remember my mother coming into my bedroom at like two o'clock in the morning one day, and I'm doing like Billy Blank's Tybo workout in the morning, this early in the morning. And she's asking me if I'm on drugs, like, am I taking speed? How can I be up this late in the morning, still exercising? And what she didn't realize and what I didn't share with her is I thought I was the most disgusting thing on earth. Like, I was just like repulsed by my body. And I was just trying to burn off the disgust that I felt for myself. And, and what she didn't realize I now talk about today is that the second person who violated me, so this started at like 11, went between the ages 11 and 12, um, he would grab the fat on my stomach and say, look at how disgusting you are. Mm. You are so disgusting. You should just be so grateful that I even want to touch your disgusting body like and these are the kinds of things he would say to me and so what started to happen is i just started to look at my body with pure disgust and so after he started to violate me i tried to do whatever i can i could to lose weight and to become Desirable. And then it became this mission of me trying to prove that I was desirable and get men to pay attention to me and for them to affirm for me that I was beautiful and that I was worthy um, of being touched, you know? And, and so it was all of these things at play that was happening. And, and it really, it was um, a very self-destructive time. And even today, you know, like I've got to be very mindful of looking at my body with compassion and kindness, you know, like after Stan died, I became morbidly obese. And so, um, I was really heavy and I had, I, I, um, I had actually developed high cholesterol and high blood pressure before the age of 30, because I had put on so much weight. And now today I've, I've, I've lost much of that weight. And now I'm at a healthy weight. Um, but now I have all of this like extra skin and, um, cellulite from, from, from all of that, you know, the damage I did to my skin from, um, from getting that large. And I have to be very careful of looking at my body and not looking at it with disgust and picking myself apart. And I have to remind myself, like when I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm looking at my extra skin or my cellulite, I have to like literally stop myself. Like, cause I'll start looking at it with criticism and I literally stop myself and I'll like hug myself and just, you know, thank my body. Like, you know, oh, like, it sounds sort of silly in some ways to say it out loud, but like, apologize for me being critical and thanking my body for all that it does for me. And I literally like put my arms around myself today many times and will just thank my body and, um, and thank my body just for still being here and for allowing me to move about and be healthy and and to make up for all that time that I, I didn't take very good care of it. So now that's my mission today, You know, to try to be as healthy, eat as clean as I can, and exercise, and just show my body
0: love to make up for lost time, you know? <laughs> wow. And I mean, your body has done a lot for you. It's, it's, it's a very strong body. You've done a lot of hiking. You've mm-hmm. done a journey of self-discovery pretty much. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, of course. So yeah, hiking in particular has had a very special role in my healing journey. Um, That's why on the cover of my book, I have, you know, a girl in the mountains because the mountains have have been very special to me. And so um, when I started putting on all of that weight um, in my mid to late 20s, Um, my doctor initially, my, my, um, primary care doctor was patient with me. She knew what had happened and she was trying to be very understanding with the weight gain, not trying to give me a hard time about it. But when I started to develop high cholesterol and sleep apnea, um, Oh wait, I think I said I had high blood pressure before I, I, I I misspoke. Um, it was high cholesterol and sleep apnea. Um, and when I started to develop those conditions, she was like, okay, she reached her enough is enough point. She was like, okay, Stephanie, I understand you're going through a difficult time, but like, you have to stop this. You, You see what's happening to your body. And so I had to be like, okay, I've always had these, you know, food I say is my one great love and my, preferred form of self-destruction so um i love to eat but i also use use it to punish myself in many ways and so at that point i couldn't tackle the eating it was it was too big for me so i decided to tackle it with physical activity and i knew that i wouldn't go to the gym just to be healthy and lose weight like that's not that's not how I roll. It's not even really how I roll today. (laughs) Um, I like to exercise to reach a goal and, or just to like do something enjoyable. And so what I started to do is I looked at meetup groups. Um, So I went to meetup.com and I started to explore different groups. And I found that there were a number of hiking groups. And I was like, oh, I grew up in the mountains. I've always loved to walk. You know, hiking would, and I never really hiked before when I was younger, like like really, like officially hiking, even though I grew up in the mountains. And so I was like, let me try this. And so I just joined some like little walks in local parks, but with being morbidly obese, like every little hill I did felt like Mount Everest. Like it was (laughs) like so hard for me, but something interesting started to happen is as I started to progress on longer, you know, hikes and I started to meet more people and found out the hikes they were doing, I started to realize like there were these huge mountains all around me. And there were all these lists, like you could get like you know, recognized for completing lists of big mountains. And I was like, lists are right up my alley. I can Mm -hmm. set a goal. And like, that's what changed everything for me. When I said I would exercise not just to be healthy, but I would exercise to reach a goal of completing these lists. And so what I started to do, and I am pretty intense at everything I do. And I don't go into anything like half-heartedly. I'm like all in. So I go from like never really hiking at all to like, I went into hiking over hundred mountains a year. And for like three years in a row, I was doing over 135 mountains a year. And um, I started just, you know, um, I started, I've done all of the 4,000 footers in the Northeastern United States. I've done 39 out of the 50 US state high points I've climbed the highest point in Africa and Europe and in Central America and I'm um, and I've just gone on to have some amazing adventures and like you said like my body I have to, I literally thank my body for for all that it's allowed me to do I also have to apologize to it for all the the uh sort of um Punishments taken in the mountains in many ways. But in my journey in the mountains, what I've gotten to see is like I've not only gotten stronger physically, but I've gotten stronger emotionally and mentally because m- many of these hikes, especially early on, I was in the mountains for 12 or 13 hours a day when I was out.
0: Wow. And
1: I, I literally like would do, I would do anywhere from two to six mountains, sometimes eight, nine mountains in a day. And that took immense like staying power to say, this is hard, but I can do it. I'm going to break it down one step at a time. And what I started to realize is I could break down my life that way, that I could treat my my life as a mountain, that every goal I was looking to obtain was a mountain. And all I had to do was break it down one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And and I could achieve anything. And that's why I have been able to go on to complete my PhD. And I've traveled around five different continents. And I, I have a life that I'm immensely proud of because I've treated it all as a mountain that I just needed to break
0: down one step at a time to reach that summit, you know? Well, it's just like you were saying in the beginning of your healing process, it was just taking a shower. Yes. Yeah. Walking out the door. That is all it takes to start a habit. I know it seems so, it can seem so difficult yet so mundane. Like this isn't, you know, but those are the things that help you get to the bigger picture right yeah wow. and, you know a lot of people um
1: they think that they see who i am today and they they see my traveling and they see my, you know, professional accomplishments and, and they think that I'm special in some way that I just went from achieving or like experiencing all these traumas. And I just somehow, because I was special could accomplish all of this. No, actually (laughs) not. I did it by just doing the bare bones basics in the very beginning. I went to Basic self care. And those basics built the belief in myself that I was deserving of more. I had a previous, like, lifetime experience of a multitude of people telling me I was unworthy in so many different ways. And I had to build that belief that I was deserving of something better than what I was currently experiencing. And so by doing the basics of showing myself love by bathing and brushing my teeth and be able to taking care of myself financially, um, I was building that belief that I deserved Better, and that I was in complete control of my future and of my current happiness, and that what was done to me in the past does not have to control me any longer. That was completely within my control to allow an unchangeable past to stay in the past and me Mm -hmm. allow myself to design a future completely within my control. And I I did this all. I was able to change my mindset little by little by proving to myself that I deserved more. And the better I felt about myself, the more I believed I deserved more. And that's all I did. And I just kept moving the bar a little higher, a little higher every time as I accomplished a little more. Okay. Let's see how much I can push it. You know? And that's what the mountains also taught me is I just I would do the same thing. I'd add on a little more mileage. I'd add on a little more elevation gain. I'd add on, you know a little bit more distance. And I would just prove to myself over and over as I moved that bar, I can meet it. And so I just did it in all other aspects of my life. I just kept moving the bar and saw, oh, I can attain this. Well, let's see if I can do a little more. And of course I could. And so it's just catapulted me into this life that some people think is is unreachable in many ways, but I didn't reach it in one big leap. I did it in small baby steps. And if I can do it, anybody else can do it too. You know, like this is the thing. I, I was a college professor for 12 years and most and most of the t- courses I taught were about the human body. And most of my education has been about the human body. And what I know from all that I've learned is that one human to another, we we have very minimal differences between us on a DNA level, cellular level, anatomical, physiological level, we have very minute differences. So what that tells me is what is possible for one person is completely possible for any other human being. And and it's because we all have within us the same capabilities to push ourselves a little further. And as we push ourselves a little further, our body and our minds adapt. And, and that's how we're designed. And we're beautifully designed in that way to handle every little stress and to get a little stronger as you place a little stress on us. We get a little bit stronger so we can progress a little bit further. And so that's why I encourage anybody who's listening today and not knowing you know, how to move forward. It's about taking that one one baby step and if you don't know where to start, I always encourage people to start with self-care. Mm-hmm. Like how can you work on taking care of yourself in a better way? Because I promise you that once you start feeling better, you are going to be able to tackle other facets of your life, whether it be financial, career, education, you know relationships. When you physically and emotionally start feeling better, you can have the capacity to accomplish more in your life. And so if your sleep is lacking, tackle that. If your diet is lacking, tackle that. If exercise, well, don't tackle them all at once, please, (laughs) but pick one area that you know that if you were to change one thing that it would start trickling into other areas. And, and it does like when you start like exercise, like Moving changes literally the chemicals in our brain. And just by changing that chemistry in the brain, it can li- start to lift you out of depression. It can start to ease anxiety, you know. Um, getting regular amounts of sleep can change the chemistry of our brain. You know, all of these things can change the way we experience in life, and it doesn't require drastic steps, just little changes at a time. You know, right. Absolutely. Was well, there anything else that you would like to add? I always like to finish with I finish my book with it. My my conclusion is titled, Be kind to yourself. And it's always my final message I I want to share with anyone on any platform is is to be. Kind and patient with yourself. You know, the healing journey is not going to be linear. There Mm -hmm. are going to be twists and turns, and you are going to get bumps and bruises along the way. And there's going to be times where you move backward. Um, And there's going to be times where you move sideways and there's going to be times where you feel like you're stagnating for weeks or months or a year. And it's okay. No two people's healing journey is going to look the same and that's okay. It's about realizing that this is your special journey and the way you are meant to experience life. And try not to condemn yourself or the journey and to condemn yourself for not moving faster or for not being farther. You're exactly where you need to be in this moment. And you cannot move faster until you build on those building blocks that you need to do. And so you're moving at the exact pace you need to move at. And so please just be kind to yourself with the pace of your journey. It doesn't have to look like mine. It doesn't have to look like yours or anybody else's. And just, and just remind yourself that you're worthy of something better than you're experiencing right now. Even if you're experiencing an immensely beautiful life, I have to tell you there's something better waiting for you. You know, that I have to tell you that I don't go, want to go back to any previous part of my life because literally every single year of my life that I stay on this earth, it is better than the year before. And so... I have to tell you that no matter how beautiful your existence is right now, it can be even more beautiful. It's about moving that bar one little bit at a time and seeing that you are deserving and worthy of
0: something more than you're experiencing right now in this moment. Beautifully said. I agree. And that's where post-traumatic growth comes Mm -hmm. from. There are those little steps that we can make that'll help us transform. Right. Um, Thank you so much, Stephanie. This has been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. That was Stephanie Hutchins, founder of Serotonous Life and author of Transformation After Trauma Embracing Post-Traumatic Growth. To learn more about Stephanie, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find the link to purchase her book. You can also find my social media platforms at the top of my homepage. Stephanie has also contributed to September's issue of Authentic Insider, which you can find at my website. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. I'm Lori Lee Vinstop. Take care.